HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. The great state of Wisconsin is home to the only master cheesemaking program outside of Switzerland. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one of your hosts, Darren Bresnitz. This week, we are so excited to share one of our favorite conversations that we had this year when we sat down with Chef Dave Barron of Dialogue in Santa Monica. Known for his stunning tasting menus and excellent choice in full albums, we have a great conversation about music, food, referencing ingredients throughout a tasting menu, and just a general conversation about what it means to pair these two passions. He is on his way to be opening up a new restaurant called Pa Sholi, and pardons if I mispronounce that, which is going to be an elevated French bistro also located in Santa Monica. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are in a gem, a secret restaurant that I definitely walked past enough times until the guy downstairs said, what are you looking for? Uh, and he showed me the magical way to dialogue in Santa Monica, and we were sitting down with chef and owner Dave Barron. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Um, this is truly a hidden gem, a real magical place. It's a little weird. I mean, we're in a food court, in a food stall that we closed off to the public and basically made our little secret room. I love it. And we're going to get to that secret room in a little bit, but I want to go back to the Midwest, born and raised, grew up, uh, and cut your teeth there. So you're born and bred Midwestern. I actually grew up in New York. Oh, you did? I did. Grew up in upstate New York. But you were born in Wisconsin? I was born in Wisconsin um, because that's where the nearest hospital was. Uh, My parents, my mom and dad lived in Ironwood, Michigan, which is the most... Uh, western tip of the Upper Peninsula okay. of Michigan. Yeah. And then when I was three, we moved to Marquette, Michigan, where okay. my dad was a professor at Northern Michigan University. And then I'm probably going to screw up the age, but when I was somewhere around like six, my parents divorced and my dad and I moved to Syracuse. And oh. my mom moved to Southwest Michigan. So all of my school year and kind of day-to-day was out of Syracuse. Gotcha. And then my every other holiday and summers were in Southwest Michigan. So it was kind of divided between the two, but not that different. Not that different. Still a lot of leaves. A lot of leaves. A lot of changing colors. Is bucolic the right word? Bucolic surroundings? I think so. I it sounds so. If not, we're going to use we're it. We're going to use it. It's like a $2 word. It's a $2 word. Um, but the Midwest sort of had a hold on you, uh, and you actually eventually went back there. 
uh, after you yeah, got through so schooling? I um, I was in Syracuse until I was 17, um, so like a junior in high school, and then I moved to Michigan and lived with my mom for uh, my junior and senior year of, of high school. Um, I really wanted to go to college in a big city, in my mind a big city anyway. Um, and uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to play hockey, and there was an opportunity for me to play. Um, yeah, I had a couple knee injuries, so D1 was definitely not on the table anymore. Um, but I had an opportunity to play D3. And, uh, Still good. Yeah, I mean, there's no career in it at that point, so it's like, why not just have fun? Yeah. You know? I have to imagine that takes the pressure off a little bit. Yeah, and, you know, two more knee surgeries, and I didn't end up playing much anyway, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but happy accident. I, I went to college just north of Chicago um, in a small town called Lake Forest, so Lake Forest College, uh, which was just like a small liberal arts school. And, again, didn't know what I wanted to do, so uh, I ended up studying business psych and philosophy. Now, one of the things that I love about your background is that you actually studied business, which I feel is such a missing part of so many people who go into the business of running a restaurant. Oh, yeah, totally. Like, what did you learn back then that you still find helpful today? And would you recommend people who want to open restaurants taking just basic business 101 classes? Well, our trajectory is kind of different because I would say, if anything, I use the philosophy and psychology degree more than the business degree. Really? Um, you know, I think a big problem with restaurants as a whole, just in general amongst the business, is that in, and I'm sure this happens in other careers too, but I know about the restaurant industry, so uh, you pretty much get promoted to being incapable of doing your job, and then you suck at it, and that's it, right? So like, if you're a good line cook, you know, if you're a good prep cook, you become a line cook. If you're a good line cook, you become tornat. And if you're a good tornat, you get promoted to sous chef. And if you're a decent sous chef and the head chef leaves, you could potentially become the head chef. And, you know, at some point, everything that you were really good at doing, you don't do anymore. Right? Like, the, the best chefs in the world, how much are they standing in front of a line cooking food? Right. Versus how much time are they spending on spreadsheets and labor costs and food costs and... P&L analysis and all of these things that had nothing to do with their passion or what ultimately got them to the position they're in. Um, and so I think, you know, from the business degree standpoint, I think the biggest thing that I kind of took from, from that and, you know, also having a lot of other friends in other industries was it's not about how well I can, you know, crank through a spreadsheet or understand the economics of something. It's it's learning to relinquish control or empower those around you to do the jobs they're good at. You know, I, I would say, you know, the best CEO in the world isn't the one who's sitting there doing all the day-to-day -day tasks. They're the one who are identifying the people to put into the roles to do those tasks. I mean, a team is really important. Yeah. As you get bigger and further along in career, having the right people in the right positions is ultimately what makes you successful. Mm -hmm. um, and the psychology, understanding of that, did that help you internally come to terms with that or help you work with others? No, I, I think that, you know, obviously playing team sports, you know, my, my initial love affair with cooking started with a, a summer job in a kitchen and it was like this balance between art and sport. You know, you're making, which are two things that I loved. And so, you know, the... Uh, it, it may not seem this way from the outside when you're just watching cooks in the kitchen, but there's some athleticism to it. Like, you have to learn how to work with people and move around them. And it's not unlike your typical team sport where you're relying on the people around you to do their jobs so that you can do yours. Um, and so, you know, having that understanding of working with a team, but also having the understanding of, of you know, from the philosophy aspect, it, it teaches you how to, not just how to argue, but how to understand perspectives. Right. And so, you know, you can all of a sudden be in the scenario where you have two cooks doing the same job, causing the same problem, or, or failing to succeed at the same task, and one responds to, you know, not that we yell in kitchens anymore, but at the time, like, one responds to being screamed at, and the other one responds to being pulled aside and saying, like, hey, you do it this way, take a step back, do it this way, watch me do this, and... You know, I think it all in, 
the, the psychology and the philosophy aspect just teach you how to talk to people and how to, you know, encourage someone to do what ultimately you want them to do. Which is what it takes to really lead a kitchen and that you learn over the years, but no one ever really teaches you until you get into that leadership. Yeah, no. And, you know, most, most of the time, especially in restaurants, it's like you get promoted to management and then it's figure out how to be a manager. Yeah, I mean, that's and, really tough, especially some people who are... And you rose very quickly on your own, and so you're finding yourselves as a relatively young person in a position of power, in a position of responsibility, um, and maybe not even knowing how to cope with that because that's just literally normal things that people don't cope with at that age. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I was... So my first real cooking job after college... Um, I was offered sous chef at a year and a half, and I'd been cooking for a year and a half. And where were you? At MK? Yep. Um, and immediately my thought was like, if you can't be a sous chef anywhere, then you shouldn't just be one somewhere. You know, because it's easy to climb the ladder in one place, but as soon as you step out of that place, you have no concept of what you're doing. And I went to True, and the same thing happened after a year. Um, and I had the same thought process, and I was really close with the chef, the chef de cuisine who was going to be leaving. Um, and we had a lot of like those heart to hearts of his background and how he got down the path he was. And so I'd end up at Alinea and that trajectory was very fast where I was like a food runner for, I don't know, two months. I actually the- want to talk about that because of what you just said to go to, I mean, MK and True are not, they're not nothing restaurants. I mean, yeah. they, I mean those are big restaurants, but Alinea is in a sphere of its own. So what was that transition like when you go to Alinea? Did, did you feel like, well, if I can do it here, I can do it anywhere? Or was it a complete mental reset of how to approach working in that type of restaurant? I mean, well, so I'll back up a little bit. When I, went, when I left MK, so I started at MK because that was the first restaurant I really followed. I, I sat and I was like, food is something special. Right. And I was really kind of swept away by it. Um, and so I was a really good cook at MK. Like, as far as, like, that kind of cook. And, you know, super cocky coming out of there. It was the only restaurant I'd worked at. I'd worked every station. Like, of course. You know, I was, I was like, expediting with the head chef. I thought I was a super badass. Like, yeah, I can cook anywhere and do anything. And how old were you? 24. Exactly. I'd been cooking for two years, oh, if man. that. So good. Um, you know, and, and <laughs> just, like, the typical, like, really cocky cook. And MK was cool, and, you know, we, like... Had the other restaurants that we were cool with. Yeah. Um, it was that whole vibe and you were in the mix. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it was it was awesome. Um, and then I went to True and immediately I looked around and True, at, right when I started True, it was when there was the battle of Trotter versus True for best restaurant in the city and Alinea was like on the cusp of opening. Um, and I think I, I applied with Atkins at Trio and I never heard back and I applied it for the opening of Alinea and I didn't hear back. And so at that time I was like, well, I got into True, which just be Trotter for best in the city. Like, it's not gonna get better. And I walked in there and I worked every station for six weeks. And my first station was like fish veg. And my second station, they threw me on Amuse. And the whole thing with the Amuse station, True had this like square plate with this four by four grid and there were four different Amuse on it. And for VIPs, you do like two sets of that. So every day, you basically had to come up with eight new bites. And you could, like, cycle them. Like, you'd run one for two or three days or, you know, but I remember calling my old chef from MK and just saying, you know, like, I, I have to quit. I can't do this. I'm like, out of ideas. I'm, like, having a meltdown about it. He's like, what's wrong with you? Like, stop. He, I, think he, I think his words out of his <laughs> mouth were literally, stop being a bitch. And he and Which, I... Which, by the way, you cannot say today. You cannot say today. Um, but... You know, he's still someone that I talk to on a regular basis. He's got this amazing little restaurant in Chicago now. And um, Shout it out. What's it called? Virtue. Yeah. Eric Williams. Yeah. Um, and I would say still this day, he's probably one of the most important people in my career because he basically stopped me out of walking, walking out of MK on a day that it was like one of the hardest days I've ever had. And then, because um, like the head chef just sent the meat cook home and looked at me and was like, you're going to cook meat tonight. And I'd never cooked meat in my life. Right. Which I was goes making, back. Yeah, I was making french yeah. fries. And then all of a sudden, I'm the meat guy. Yeah. Um, and I was, I got hit in the head with lamb chop, and then I was done. And then Eric was like, hand on the back door, came back in, and was like, 
I'll just make fries with you. You're going to do it though. I'm not going to do it for you. And then it was that same thing at True. Like, you're going to do this. No one's going to do it for you. And, um, you know, so by the time I was done at True, I was like, I'm awesome. Like, oh. Yeah. Like, my, how old were you then? 25. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> 24, you knew nothing. 25 year old, you. Well, because the whole thing was like, my chef was from Ducasse. And so everything that we were doing, I would say, well, how would you have done this at Ducasse? Right. And so it went from individual fish portions to him saying, well, we would butcher it to order. Well, we'd cook it on the bone and take it off the bone. So, like, I was trying to do more than we were doing. Um, so, of course, you think you're, like, a stud in the kitchen. Yeah. Um, and I was, you know, I was ready to leave, and I talked to Corey Lee at Laundry, and I was looking at Robichon Mansion, and I just threw a Hail Mary email to Alinea, and it was, like, way, way late night after a bar. Sure. Like, you know. You're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to email these guys. I'm like, ah, like, I need to get in there. One of the cooks I work with, um, her name is Kim Florescu, and she used to run most recently, not most recently, probably four years ago, she was a chef who was in Meadowood. Um, but she and I worked together, true, and her boyfriend was a cook at Alinea, and I knew they were leaving. So she's like, just email him. Just, e- just send an email. And I did, and I got a call at 10 a.m. that woke me up, and it was Ackett since I went and stodged. And That day? Uh, no. <laughs> Thank God, no. Um, my girlfriend at the time was taking me for my birthday, so I ate the following week, stodged the week after. Awesome. And uh, I got a job that night and canceled my French Laundry and Robichon trials. Um, and Alinea was like, you know, one, I was pissed because after I got hired, they offered me, you start as a food runner. I was like, I didn't do this to come carry food to a dining room. I came here to cook. And, you know, not, of course the arrogance is setting in. And I'm like, yeah. I'm a cook. I'm not a server. Yeah, you know, I'm, a, I'm 25, <clears throat> and I worked in three kitchens. Yeah, like, do you know where I used to work before this? <laughs> um, you know, it's stupid. But, um, and that, that was probably one of the most important things I ever did at Alinea was run food, because it totally made me understand how diners, I mean, understand, like, eight weeks worth of it. Sure. But at least respect how diners interact with the food and how... The way you talk about the food changes their perspective on it and the relationship between front and back of the house, the importance of that. And so Alinea was just this whole different level. Like you would wait in line outside the door, the back door of the kitchen with like all the hotel pans in your hand from the basement, your two induction burners and everything that was in the basement storage room that you needed for prep. And it was like a wind sprint to service. And then service was just insane. And then a wind sprint to clean up. And then you'd go home at like 2.30 in the morning. And then you'd be back at 11, waiting at the back door for him to unlock it at noon to let you in. You know, because Atkins was there at like 9, 10 in the morning. But oh, yeah. I mean, if Chef is going to be there, right? Well, he, so the whole thing was like he wanted the push. So, yeah, it would probably be a lot easier and a lot more in control if you could walk in at 11. But the whole idea is if you give one person a job and you tell them they have to have it done in four hours or three or two or one, they're going to use the whole window of time. And he didn't want he didn't want people being lazy. He wanted people pushing. So the door unlocked at noon and in you came. And it was like, ugh, someone would have the blender and you needed the blender. And then there was a line for the blender because there was only one. But it was like your day to puree. But then it was also your day to put produce away. And it was insane. So Alinea was just like nothing else. Awesome. Well, listen, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to talk about uh, going from Alinea to Next, and then eventually your move out of the Midwest into the West Coast and opening dialogue. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Got no paper in my pockets now But I will, I swear 
like your pretty hair As long as my heart keeps pumping blood Ain't gonna disappear Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with chef and owner of Dialogue, Dave Burham. And you put in your time at Alinea. Um, and when did the idea of Next start to percolate? Well, so Alinea was like this huge sprint and it was food, you know, typically in a, in a cook's trajectory through a kitchen you have these like six month windows and after six months in most restaurants nothing really changes so after six months you're bored and then you start like like at MK I started looking at other restaurants but then I got to do private parties and then after six months I was expediting and you know I, so that's just kind of the nature of the beast like at true if I hadn't changed stations every six weeks I'd have been bored and after a year I'd done everything and I was ready to move in anyway um, at Linea it was the same thing where it was like eight weeks of running food Six months of being a cook, six months of being a tornado. Then I was sous chef. I think sous chef was my longest. No, sous chef was maybe a year. Um, and then all of a sudden I was chef de cuisine. And I was like 27 and didn't know what I was doing. And you know, it, Atkins had not been back from being sick for very long. And we were like climbing the world top 50 ladder and you know, Michelin was on the horizon and it was just like this rapid fire of things. And all of a sudden, Atkins one day sits down with me and is like, you know, I know that you're probably thinking about moving on and going somewhere else and what the next thing is. We just want to talk to you about that. And if, you know, if you have ideas, you know, maybe we could do something with you or, you know, just keep us, basically just keep an open conversation about it. And at that time, it blindsided me because my thought was like, everything I've ever wanted to do, I'm getting to do. So why would I leave? And if I left right now, I would just open like a less good version of this restaurant. Right. 
you know, and of, of course, you know, you're 27 and you're chef de cuisine of a restaurant that has been named like best in the country and is, I think at that time it was like number 10 in the world. Um, and so like, I thought I was a badass, you know, like why would I want to leave that? That yeah. was so, it was so cool. And, and was, also you've been around the Chicago scene, like, like everyone knows you, there's yeah. no door that's not open to you, you got a whole crew. I mean, it was just, it was such an incredible place and everything, it was like, it couldn't miss the mark. Like everything that it could do, it was doing. Um, you know, some things just fire on all cylinders at times and it was. Um, and not because of me or Ackett's or it was just, it was a magical time for that restaurant. It goes back to that team mentality. You were yeah, about. yeah, totally. Everything about it. And everyone was there to make that restaurant better. There was no one that was just showing up for a name on a resume at that point. Um, and so, you know, he kind of planted the seed and I was clueless. I was just focused on the restaurant. Um, and then, you know, at that time, I'm sure you've heard the backstory of like, you know, Ackett's getting sick and then him cooking some like duck and morel dish for Nick that was just classic French and Nick's saying why don't we cook food like this and blah 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 and you know that whole thing which you know that kind of planted the seed for them on this restaurant that changes concepts um, rather than doing you know we'd get bored if we cooked this for three months and Nick was saying well why don't you cook that for three months and cook something else and so they were hatching their little next plan um, and Nick was all seasoned as a kickstarter for uh, tickets um, for restaurants as opposed to reservations and so, I want to say it was Nick that approached me. We were, we all used to G-chat at night. Like, that's like how we communicated. It was just like, everyone was always on their computer working on stuff. And next thing you know, it's like, you know, one in the morning and a G-chat pops up and says, you there, chef? And you're like, oh, yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah, I'm here. So, um, Nick told me about the next concept. And I told him it was cool. And I told him I didn't like the name. And then I spent... You know, trying to, like, come up with cooler names. Um, and then Ackett's talked to me about it, and I think initially I really was not interested at all. Um, because, you know, the ego of the fancy restaurant kicks in, and then you say, well, I don't want to leave here to work at a bistro, because the opening menu is supposed to be 1910 Bistro. Um, it's like, why would I leave exactly what I want to do to go do something basic and simple that anyone else could do? Um, and then that like snowballed over six months of conversation and eventually it was like well your sous chef's gonna be the chef of it or you're gonna be the chef and so then the ego kicks in again you go well he's not gonna take my job yeah so that part kicks in and then you know Atkins and I had some really positive conversations about it and about what trio was for him between French Laundry and Alinea and how next was kind of my trio opportunity where I could have a chance to figure out what my food was without the pressure of having your own restaurant um, but also the freedom to create. Yeah. And so, you know, he really sold me on the idea of that aspect of it. And then we switched it from being a bistro menu to a scaffier. So it could be fine dining, you know, which immediately satisfies my ego of I create cool tasting menus. Yeah. Um, and so we did it. And, you know, I left Alinea in 2011 to open Next. I mean, Next was... Personally, I felt the talk of the restaurant scene nationally for when it opened. It was the most insane. We shut off the wait list of like... Yeah. I, I might... I want to say it was like 20,000 individual names on a wait list. Yeah. For 7,000 seats. I mean, it was insane. Like, <laughs> it's so stupid. And I know it's been talked a lot about, but what is the one crazy moment in the whole next journey that comes to mind when you think about that really epitomized... Your, your time there? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know about crazy, but that first review when Phil, Phil Vitell put out the news, the newspaper came out and like, you don't know what it's going to say and you don't know how the restaurant feels and what it is. And all of a sudden this review comes out and the title of it just says, I went looking for greatness and I found it. And I just remember looking at that and thinking like, we did something really special in a way that no one has done it before. I mean, you won a ton of awards, beard awards, tons of accolades and things like that. And I feel that with your trajectory in Chicago and the restaurants that people got to work with and then getting the James Beard and being named onto the top of the list and food and wine, things like that, 
do once you get those awards and all those accolades and have done that, did that f- start to maybe free you up and loosen you up to think about like what could be next? Like, did you have did that like internal hunt to maybe prove something go mm. away, or did it did it once you get the awards you go now I got to double down and do whatever I do after next is got to be even bigger and better. No, I mean you know the through the process of next it was really sort of this build on understanding what my thought, what my food was. And so, you know, for better or worse, that's a very, I was very protected there. Like, regardless of my food, Ackett's and Nick weren't going to let us fail. Like, that restaurant was not going to fail. And then the demand was so big, you know, that you had all this freedom because you knew no matter what you did, for those first, I don't know, two and a half, three years, you couldn't get a table there. Yeah. The it mon- was completely sold out. The money was there. Yeah, and so... There was no fear of like, oh, if this one sucks, no one's going to come in kind of thing. Like, we just were doing. And so, I don't think it ever occurred to me that there was... It didn't really start occurring to me that there was something else I wanted to do until I got through 2013. And there were three menus that I really fell in love with that were a progression of menus that I felt like I was kind of finding my style. And in retrospect... There were like echoes of what we do now in it, but it was the first time that I felt like I was cooking food that maybe didn't fit on the menu of Linear. And what were those menus? Um, Kaiseki, Hunt, and Vegan. And they were a trio of three menus that menu structure-wise were very similar. If we looked at photos of it, food-wise, they were similar enough. Obviously, Kaiseki one had more Japanese influence. Sure. Um, but overall, I think those three menus made me feel like I had a voice in food now um, because we were coming off of doing albuli and then a rustic Sicilian menu that was all share food and now it was like okay I haven't done any food that I've created in a proper tasting menu format in uh, nine months or something like that um, and then all of a sudden we switched again and we were doing menus and food that wasn't in the direction I've been going with those and immediately I thought I think that's when it kind of wakes you up and you realize like it's not my restaurant. Like, it's not, you know, it's it's not... This restaurant has to be something, and it has an identity. And the whole premise behind that restaurant was constant change. And so, not constant change in menu change, but constant change in... We can do three Michelin food for this menu, and... Um, it's produce delivery. Um, we can do three Michelin food for this menu, but the next menu, we... Um, you know, we can be Chinese takeout. And so how does that allow you to develop a style? Um, and so once I'd fallen in the groove of that style, I realized that the two were kind of parting and that I was probably going to hold the restaurant back, being wed to one style, and the restaurant was going to prevent me from following the style I wanted to do. And so when you come to that realization, do you feel that you need to um, start looking at places in Chicago or when did the creep of LA and moving out of that town start to sink in as well did you want to just have a complete reset and like a clean break um you know initially the entire plan was just to um to basically work with the group and do my own thing and you know see them as partners and the problem with doing that is well I'll back up. So I didn't really think about what I was going to do. What I thought about more so was um, how how do I figure out where my voice is? How do I understand what the next thing is? And so, you know, it's not like I had a restaurant plan. I just kind of took a step back and said, I don't even understand what my restaurant is. And so one of my really good friends who now is my business partner, um, he's a movie producer, and so he and I would always, he's very creative, and, and I do well in the mindset of like talking to creatives, and so I like writing, and he said, well, why don't you just write your restaurant? Why don't you write the story of it? Um, I talked to Stu Pack a little bit, and Alex Stu Pack from yeah. Empeon, and um, you Love know, he is incredible. He is on his own plane. Um, and he's like, once you get him talking in the right way, he's brilliant. And, you know, you get him up on his soapbox in just the right moment. And the things he says, if you're listening, are like, they're gold. And one day he was talking about Empeon before it was Empeon. And 
he was saying that he'd been doing these investor dinners and people kept asking what Empeon was and he kept like saying, you know, it's not like this, it's kind of like this and, you know, it's whatever. But all he was doing, it's like if you describe your kid and you say, you know, my son is like Tom, but isn't like Joe, but is tall like Billy. You're not describing yeah. your kid, you're describing the nuances of everyone else's child. And so as soon as he started talking about that and saying that he had to take a step back and understand what his restaurant was, that's when I realized that I was never going to have a restaurant until I understood what that restaurant is without naming another restaurant. And once you hit that realization, was that when you realized you had to go to a different city or is it part of what the story of what you wanted to tell because, you know, you're ingredient driven, you're seasonally driven, um, you know, you knew you wanted to do some sort of high-end tasting menu, which Chicago is probably one of the last cities that really embraces that. But when did L.A. start to creep in, especially since L.A.'s rise to culinary prominence is only the last couple of years? Yeah. What made you want to come out here? Well, so initially it was New York, and then it was San Francisco. And it was it had always been New York. Like, at one point, uh, the Cortone space became available. Mm. Paul Lieberman space. And Shout out. Yeah, we t- it was awesome. It was an awesome restaurant. And we looked at that space, and I could stab down one day and talk to me about running the New York restaurant if I wanted to do it. And obviously we did not pursue that. Um, I don't know if we chose not to or they chose not to. I just know it didn't happen. Um, and so New York was, I mean, New York has always been that place where I got off a plane and I feel at home. And I was like dead set on it. And I was looking at real estate and I was also helping coach Boku stores. So I was looking at San Francisco at the time because I was in Yountville so much. So by default I was in San Francisco. Um, and I was really falling in love with both cities for different reasons. Um, but I was also, as I started looking at real estate and cost of living and things like that, I started realizing that those cities were not going to be viable. No. Um, you know, the problem with both cities is, one, I, I don't think there's a lot of room for as the new restaurant that I wanted to do. You know, they're, they're great markets, but they're also saturated. Um, and the other thing is, as a company... I knew that if I was going to do something, there had to be some impact on the industry as a whole. And so we really wanted to start looking at culture internally. Um, And, you know, the problem with the hospitality industry is it's so forward-facing, right? You do all of this work to take care of your diners and give them everything that you have, and then we just destroy each other in restaurants. Yeah. You know, you destroy each other in a health-wise going at, like, in regards to health, like going out too much and drinking and staying up. You, I mean, obviously, all the sexual harassment stuff that's come out in the last year isn't new. It's just someone talked about it. Yeah. You know, and so if there's going to be a cultural shift, it has to be on a lot of different levels. And, you know, the big thing I was looking at was quality of life for the staff. And, you know, if you make fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 as a cook, that's a good cook's wage. But if you make it in New York or San Francisco versus Kalamazoo, Michigan, you, it's a totally different life. Yeah. Um, and I would hear stories of these cooks living five deep in a 700 square foot apartment in San Francisco because they can't afford to live anywhere else. And that's, I mean, when I started Linny, I made 19,000 ish as a base salary. Like you can't live like that. Um, and so a lot of cooking jobs are basically starting the timer for when the cook has to quit. They either get promoted or they leave. And, um, we wanted to make sure culture was first. And so San Francisco, New York, just as far as, what cooks could do with the money we were paying them won't work. Uh, my business partner lives here, and over three years I'd been visiting him while kind of scouting these cities. Um, and I was slowly starting to, well, I really didn't like LA at all at first. He lives in Encino in, um, you know, a yard with a fence and a pool and a garage that's detached out back. And, yeah. You know, the there. Suburb. Yeah, it, it just it felt like I was in Schaumburg in Chicago. It didn't feel like a city, and I didn't like it. Um, but he didn't like downtown Chicago because it didn't feel like a suburb. Uh, so when we finally had that epiphany, I started seeing parts of LA that I really liked. And ultimately, my plan was to have like, you know, market research and real estate prices and my deck that I'd been writing for three years and sit with the Alinea team and talk to them about partnering. Um, and so I did that. Uh, I did that right before the terroir menu. Um, which was like my final menu at Next. And um, ultimately we decided that it wasn't going to work. They had too much on their plate and I wanted to go in a different direction. And um, 
my now business partner had been helping me with all of the story and business model and everything. Um, he and his family were just like, well, we'd be interested. I mean, we basically wrote all of this, so we know it works. So, hmm. um, I had a lot of friends who were moving out here or already lived here who were opening restaurants. There was this opportunity for, you know, a, some sort of like restaurant community. Um, the produce was sweeping me off my feet. Yeah. And the potential for quality of life out here. Um, you know, in, in San Francisco, you're going to pay a small fortune for parking if you live in Oakland because you can't take public transportation. It's almost cheaper to Uber to and from work every day. And so here, you know, we could provide or pay for parking for the staff. We could, you could live close enough, but in a less expensive area. Like there were just things were just falling into place all at once after three years of not getting the city. So I made the move. Awesome. We're going to take a quick musical break and then we're going to talk about how music who's a big part in dialogue and uh, how you got the doors open. We have another song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Snacky Tunes. We are with chef owner Dave Barron at Dialogue in Santa Monica. And one of the things I want to touch about in the restaurant and how you build your menus is how much music has yeah. an influence on it. Um, and you you had written once about the lost art of a great album, which I wholeheartedly agree with. I believe the music industry has shifted into single mode only. And so, 
there are albums that I love, but when a new album comes out, when a band has actually put out an album in 2019, it blows me away and gets me so excited because it's such a rarity now. It's not just 10 songs in one single yeah. just to bulk out that album. But I want to talk to you about your feelings about music, your feelings about album, and its ultimate influence on you creating tasting menus. Yeah, music's been a, a big driving force here, which is kind of weird to say because I have no musical talent. I can't play an instrument. Can I say that most chefs that I come across love music, but don't know how to play, which is fine because they spend all their time cooking. Yeah. Like, I, I wish I could play the piano. Like, that's an instrument I would love to be able to play. Just one of those, like, late-night jazz riffy... I don't even know when I'd do it. I would just like to be able to say, like, I can play the piano. Yeah. You know, I probably would never play it, but if I could. Um, no, so, you know, when I was first working on the tasting menu structure of this restaurant, um, the thing that I loved about Alinea that was such a departure from anything I'd seen is that every dish for the most part, it had some sort of story to it, you know? And so, like, everyone's famously seen this, or seen this famous, like, burning oak leaf dish. There's, like, a hundred pictures of Atkins holding these burning oak leaves, and on the end of it is a tempura fried pheasant. And, you know, apple and pickled shallot and whatever else. But it's, like, autumn in a bite. Everything about it. The aesthetic, the aroma. Um, and it was food like that that made me fall in love with Alinea. Um, and that's, you know, obviously, I don't know where is at now, but at the time that I was there, I think that's the thing that I tried to hold on with the food I was making because that, in 2006, when I ate there, I, nothing had moved me like that as from, a, from a culinary standpoint. Um, the thing I loved about Next is that every menu was its own idea, right? So you could do a Thai menu and a French menu and, or whatever else, and each one of those was a thing. Um, and I, I wanted to, you know, take inspiration from both of those things, but I also was was finding myself asking why. You know, I, I went to, uh, I don't know if you know Kyle Connaughton at Single Thread Farms, mm-hmm. um, but I went up there, he's been a good friend for a long time. He kind of saved my life for the Japanese kaiseki menu because he, he told me, you know, basically like, if you put this before this, it works, otherwise it's wrong, so... He added validity to that menu. Um, but I went up to see him just before Single Threaded Open, and he walked me through, and he talked about, you know, at that point I thought, like, dialogue was mostly done, and I'm getting close, and you know, I have all this in mind. Um, and he walked me through, and he was telling me about the window screens, and I believe there's 12 of them, and one represents each month, because the weaving on it is the DNA strand of the vegetable that grows that month at their farm. That's wild. And I looked at that, and I was like huh, I've been Googling paintings for the restaurant and this is where you're at. Yeah. And so I took a step back and I was like, man, you know, if we have, because this, the restaurant as it sits now isn't the original version, but it's the version that I'm glad we created um, because it's so small, everything has to matter. You right. know, and, and so that conversation with him really built this idea of like, Am I doing enough and am I doing it the right way? You know, because it's not about, you know, looking at things saying, does it need more? What else does it need? What else does it need? It's about saying, this is what I have. How do I make it matter? Um, and so with the menu structure, you know, I couldn't wrap my head around the farmer's market because like December, you've got strawberries, you've got coriander flowers, you've got pumpkins, and they're all good. Like it's just a winter variety of strawberry, but it's still, it's not like, you know, the Driscoll's strawberry apple that you see in December at, you know, Jewel Osco in Chicago. Um, they're real strawberries. And so, you know, I, I just, I wasn't ready to let go of food as I knew it being seasonally driven, like Midwest seasons. Yeah. Um, and so as I was looking back at menu structures that I'd done in the past, Kaiseki was really drawing me in because Kaiseki is about creating forward momentum and about connecting seasons so it allowed me to it allowed us as a restaurant to compartmentalize the farmer's market and approach it the ingredients through the seasons that we do um the whole sorry drilling notes here uh the whole premise around this restaurant is forward progress and so if we're starting here but saying that our end game isn't here we always need to be looking forward and kaiseki does that it starts in one season it ends in the next 
and then the next season you do it again. So you're always looking backwards, then looking forward. Um, so with that, we had a menu that had a progression. With this construction. It's fine, it's real. Um, yeah, construction downstairs. Um, so I wanted, you know, I wasn't gonna adhere to Japanese styles of menus. I just wanted a note to it. And so from there, I was trying to figure out like, well, how do you open a menu? How do you close a menu? You know, we started this notion of ending, starting in the meal with a hug, which just meant like this comforting thing. And so I thought, well, we should do away with Amuse because an Amuse is just a quick bite to get you started. It doesn't let you settle in. So on our opening menu, we had this very large course for your first course that you had to sit with for 10 or 12 minutes, which then let you kind of calm down and settle into the restaurant. Um, and so our first menu, we were still kind of tinkering with these ideas a bit. Um, but there were a couple of albums that specifically stood out. I was, um, there was this Roots album and I didn't like it at first. Um, like I, I didn't, it was fine. It's not like I disliked it. Like I wasn't actively like throws in the trash. Uh, I just, Which I, album? uh, and then you shoot your cousin, um, which isn't one of their most popular albums, but it's a really good album. Um, and I, I didn't really appreciate it until I was out for a run. I think it was in like Barcelona. I was out running and got caught in a rainstorm. I couldn't change songs. So I ended up listening to this album three times straight through. Um, and by the by the second time, I'd, I was like falling in love with it. And it quickly became one of my favorite albums. Um, and so I would emailed Questlove about it. And I just, I asked what the backstory was. And he wrote me back the story about, uh, it was just a really short note. And he said, that album, you know, their manager had was sick. He had, I believe leukemia had a year left to live, and that was their like last will and testament to him. And that was, you know, it's like a progression of emotions. And so, if you don't experience it in order, you're not experiencing it the way it's intended to be, to be felt. Um, and that that was like the lightning bolt. Like, how do we write a menu that has to be experienced in order? How do we write a menu that, you know, it's not about, you know this dish right here being the one it's about how you got there and how you left it um and you know radiohead i think did that well with a few albums where it's like you know electioneering is a better song because of the songs around it um you know and, and everyone can name albums that they relate to that are their version of it but that roots album just did it like we we immediately like how do you write first it started how do you write food that there's a progression of emotions, then just write, became, how do you write a progression of food? Because tasting menus are playlists for the most part. I mean, it's interesting with that concept because when I fall in love with an album, I get excited when I go, okay, we're coming up on this run. Yeah. Like these next three songs, because it's burned into my brain, it's burned into my soul. But with the tasting menu, with the current state of dining, a lot of times people come out once, mm -hmm. right? So how do you get people to experience a tasting menu like an album if you know they're only gonna get a chance to have it once maybe not get a chance to go back and revisit it I mean most guests don't revisit them any more than once here like that's it and then you know for us it's more about selfishly it's about our evolution mm. you know because I wanted I mean this restaurant as you sit in here it's very I mean it's obviously not decorated like it would be at service but it's very bare right it's like a, it's like a theater set you know? I love. I mean, I love it. Well, we always use the analogy of movie versus play, and you know, the thing about a tasting menu is that it's a story on the plate in front of you, right? It's like that's the focal point, and so this is essentially a play, right? If we're if we're talking about a library in a movie, you care about you know the book on the top right shelf of the third bookshelf and the wear patterns of the carpet and everything, like everything matters in that in that shot. But if it, if the same library is in a play, you have like one table, one bookshelf, one lamp, and you dim the lights. And the audience is what creates the energy and the, the way that the, the character in the play moves and, and acts, like that's the story, that's the plate. And so for us, you know, it, it's really about letting everything fall to the backside and, and focus on that. And so we're building story upon story. So every menu has, you know, the courses, basically what we did is every course has something in it from the previous dish and something looking forward to the next dish. Interesting. With ingredient, which which totally goes against everything tasting menus say, because like you know, in most restaurants, if you use parsley in your dish, parsley can't be in my dish. Right. It's how you show versatility. 
Um, and it's how you end up with like so many different dishes and ingredients. But that's that's single verse album. Yeah. Right. And so it's like, oh, you know, the snare was the leading part of the drum kit on this one, so we can't do that for the next one. People were thinking. Well, Tribe Called Quest did it beautifully when, like, you'll listen to their album and you'll hear the same thing a few times through. And it's like, oh, are we back to that? No, but we've actually moved to this part. It's a slightly different version of a song you heard three ago. But I love that up. when there's callbacks. I mean, yeah. and look, if you look at, at, at musical theater, you look at uh, classical music, opera sure, movements, totally. uh, the, the idea of building on a theme is what makes something it's a parallel construction idea yeah where you introduce it's a blank slate but you introduce you know uh, timpani drums right and then they just keep growing throughout and so by the end you're just like looking forward to hearing the timpani again because you've already had them uh, introduced you at the beginning and so now you feel so familiar with it that it becomes a whole new experience yeah I mean even even with jazz it's like the whole yes storylines going through but then one instrument will take the lead yeah and then it goes back to me and then the next instrument takes the lead but it's still all a part of that same story um, and all of these thoughts were drawing us into this idea of what if it all connected and so what that immediate um, epiphany like that that moment basically led us this idea of what if we now serve courses that are incomplete like what if we serve you something that if I gave it to you right now as you sit in this restaurant not during service and you tried it you'd say that's fine and it wouldn't sweep you off your feet and you probably wouldn't tell your friends about it later but if you had the course before it and the course after it that course would be important and so like even on this menu right now we have uh, a cucumber and lilac soda and we have this like awesome aged lilac syrup that's like age for two years right now until we run out then it'll be aged for one year because we have the next years um, and so we just mix that with cucumber juice and we clarify it and we force carbonate it right it's it's cool it's delicious you're welcome to taste it later if you want um, but it doesn't have enough acid or enough sweetness in it it's a very dry light it's it's not quite to the LaCroix thing but it's like along those lines but you're in that world yeah and so you know you think to yourself, well, this isn't going to work, but if I add acid to cucumber soda, it tastes like a pickle. And we don't want pickle soda, we want cucumber soda. So the course we served before it is a crispy rhubarb chip with a lilac, little dot of lilac pudding on the bottom. And what happens is you get the lilac flavor first, and then the rhubarb chip hydrates, and it gets stuck in your teeth. And so you have this sugar, and then also this acid coating the roof of your mouth. And then you drink the soda, and now you have basically a rhubarb lilac cucumber soda so one course is completing the next but they're separate things because if you mix them you have a pickle you don't want a pickle um and so you know this many specifically we're doing with texture we'll have a course that's almost absent of texture not absent but like consistent in texture and we'll follow that with a very crunchy course and then we'll follow it with something else so courses now texturally are completing the idea as well or color wise completing the idea um, and so really what we have is now a menu that looks forward and backwards with seasons and forward and backwards with courses. And then big picture, because it's all about the progression of how we figure out what this restaurant wants to become, the menus are linked as well. So every menu has one dish from the previous menu, one dish that'll be on the next. So we always... So that, that's the box set. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you buy albums, right? And you listen to them. And somewhere along the line, there's like a stylistic sort of you know, nuance to them that links them, but they're totally different. You're not going to start your new album with song seven of your old one and change that first and then change song three and then change song six because that's not a new album. You know, that's like a few songs here and there. Um, and I started feeling like that's what most tasting menus were. They're playlists that you're just swapping songs in and out of. Awesome. Well, now that you have the restaurant, now that you've started where do you see it going next? You know, what's the next, what's the next tasting menu? Is there an album that you would, that is inspiring you for a whole tasting menu? Or are you just going to be inspired by what you've done in the past and while also looking to the future? Well, I think, I don't know. Right now I've been, uh, I've been trying to dive more into the idea of storylines and also deeper into music. There's this um, podcast that are, our uh, business manager sends me and it's dissect and it basically just oh, yeah. rips albums apart yeah um, and that's been really kind of blowing my mind 
Like, I don't know how much the artist intends and how much you're inferring from what you're reading out of it. Somewhere in the middle. But it, it, it it's still interesting. Yeah. Like, it makes you think about things in a different way. And then we have a few writers and directors who've eaten here. We had one last night who, um, he directed three of the last six Game of Thrones. And so... Was it Nutter? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, David Nutter, he's been in three or four times. I got a lot of questions. Yeah, I had a lot of questions, too. <laughs> he won't answer them. It doesn't matter. Um... He's like, you can email me after the finale. Yeah, you got two like, weeks. I was like, just, just, okay. <laughs> I just walked away. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> towards the end of his meal, we were talking about developing storylines. Because he, you know, in my head, he always directs the battle scenes. But it's not the battle scenes as much as, like, the Red Wedding. It's about people interacting with each other. And that didn't occur to me until he was telling me how he sets up scenes and, and how it's more important for him to direct a scene around the relationships of the um, of of the characters, and that's how the camera follows them, and, and how he builds the storyline. And immediately, I was like, I need to understand storylines more. Like, I need to um, figure out more interesting ways to go deeper with things. Where you know, we don't beat the guests over the head with it. It's a lot of Easter eggs. Like, the more it's a reciprocative style of service, so the more questions you ask, mm. the more information you'll get. We don't walk up to you and say, "And now, coming from your last dish, yeah. is this like." You know, it's we don't tell people why we play the music we do, but if people ask about the music, it's part or ask about the menu structure. All these. Are you matching the playlist to the courses? No, because we stagger our seating. Fair enough. I really wanted to. In fact, we had one menu based around growth, and it was a winter, spring, summer. So the first course was snow, last course was fruit, and it was like a flip book. Every course went one to the next. So I really wanted to start with a piano solo and end with a full symphony, and this room was so stuffy, and we stagger our seating so it was like all piano and then all symphony. And not in just like like twenty minutes of transition, right? Um, so we only play full albums straight through, and the albums always link to each other. Typically, they're jazz focused in music undertones, and because the forward progress thing, and hip hop and vocals, um, because that's rhythmic talking essentially, and it gets people talking at a cadence. We always keep it one notch above the volume in the room until it gets to a good energy. So, uh, and it builds a good like lively energy in here because it's so small that if it's quiet it's like awful yeah um so but it's different every night we play off the mood i'll do like like the other night at a childish can be no progression but it was all backwards because it builds it's <laughs> yeah. more intense as it's older um which built the energy in the dining room um i remember what we did last night we did like a, a, a couple kendrick albums and then just the Game of Thrones playlist. Yeah, and that was it. And then just dragons, the dragons. Just shooting fire. Uh, um, so yeah, I don't know where the next menu is going yet. We're still trying to figure it out. Oh, so, well, listen, <laughs> Chef, thank you so much. It's so exciting. If people want to come check out the restaurant or come visit, where can they go? Dialogrestaurant.com. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, that's it. This show is yours today. No band, all you. A couple of live tracks from the archives. Awesome. Really appreciate you sitting down with us. Of course. Uh, we have one last song from the archives. Here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org, and we will see you next week. Thanks for listening, and uh, talk to you soon. You come around and ask me saying that you need to